Despite what beautiful, glossy social media and advertisers would have us believe, making it through life's challenges is not summed up in five easy steps. And we don't find peace in the storms of life from a handbag, face cream, or the latest sneakers. Life is challenging. And sometimes life is stage four metastatic cancer challenging. So how do we make it through all that life throws at us? Hi, I'm Jane Jalon, and I have had the privilege, honor, and blessing of working with cancer patients since 2011 as the palliative care chaplain at Yale New Haven Hospital. As I have listened to patients over the years process their living, dying, healing, and not healing, I have been struck again and again by the profound spiritual insights and resilience that have surfaced in our meetings, and I've often thought that these incredible nuggets of truth should not be for my ears alone, but instead should be offered to the world. Now I know that cancer patients often hear that they are an inspiration. They're so brave and so strong. And for most patients, this is the last thing they wanna hear as they're crawling into bed exhausted after just a walk around the block. But I also know that you do not need to be a published best-selling author You do not need an alphabet of degrees after your name. You do not need a fancy job title or a million followers on Instagram to have a profound, unique, and important perspective on life and how to survive and even how to thrive in the midst of it all. The patients, caregivers, and clinicians that you will hear from have been through it all, supported it all, and seen it all. The stories, interviews, and voices you will hear in this podcast will change you. They've changed me, and I have watched as they've changed others. So get ready to laugh, cry, and be moved to a deeper place. Get ready to find a way forward. Welcome to In the Midst of It All. I am so happy to welcome our guest today, Ellen Silver. After publishing our first series of patient stories at Smilo, we held a book reading that Ellen was able to attend. After the book reading, Ellen was moved to reach out to me, and oh boy, am I glad she did. Over the last year and a half, I have helped Ellen write her story and have witnessed Ellen's incredible courage to face difficult things in her life as well as her ability to be flexible, change, and grow into the person she is today. Ellen was raised in an Orthodox Jewish home, and in the midst of her cancer journey has developed a rich spirituality. Recently, Ellen showed me a beautiful quote that reads, Just when the caterpillar thought it was over, it became a butterfly. I am so thankful to have had a front row seat as Ellen has become the most exquisite butterfly. I am so delighted to welcome you, Ellen, today to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. Thank you. Well, I thought uh, the way we could start today is just by you sharing a little bit about where you're from, your childhood, um, and how that was being raised in the city, your mother. I grew up in both Brooklyn and Queens, New York. Mm -hmm. My grandmother lived with us, and Mm -hmm. she was the one, actually, who was 
the nurturer to myself and to my siblings, my brother and my sister. Right. And at around age 11, she developed dementia Mm. and continued to live with us for the next five years. And that was an awful struggle Mm -hmm. because she didn't belong in the home with, with young children. And my mother and I would have huge fights about that. Mm. And my mother herself was dependent on her, on her mother. My grandmother was the one who took care of the children, did all the cooking. Mm. And wow. I have a large extended family who were always around. Mm-hmm. Um, we celebrated all of the Jewish holidays and Extended with extended family. Mm-hmm. Um, my grandmother was very loving. I grew up knowing that my mother was not a loving, loving person. Mm. Um, she didn't know how to show love because mm-hmm. it was all about her. Mm. My dad, on the other hand, it wasn't until later in life, almost when he became terminally ill, mm-hmm. that I discovered how strong he was, Mm. the courage he had, and the strength that he had. Yeah. Um, Which really has helped me considerably on my own journey. Yeah. Yeah, and I remember you mentioning it was so different than when your mother had died. Your mother had died before your father, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, That was a total nightmare. For me Mm -hmm. and for Mm -hmm. my sister. Apparently, she had a low tolerance for pain and (laughs) carried on. They, back in 1978, they didn't know much about asbestos-caused cancer. Mm -hmm. And she was one of the first cases to be reported in New York. Mm. And she went and dug out every type of doctor to treat the pain in her back. hmm And she made my life and my sister's, who was pregnant at the time, mm. when I say a living hell. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it took a year for them to make the diagnosis of mesothemioma. Mm-hmm. Okay. And her primary doctor, very first doctor, told us that's what he feels she had, but cannot make it a diagnosis because the tests were coming back false positive. Wow. When, when finally we were told she was terminal and yeah. had a short time to live, um, we took her home. She was carrying on. I was going there on the weekend from the city I was living. And I told my dad that he needed to get an aide in the house to be with her. Mm-hmm. She had a terrible fear of dying and the illness. And he was refusing. Mm-hmm. We had a knockout fight. Um, I did. I called her insurance. And it turned out she had excellent health care insurance that paid for an LPN. Oh, nice. 
So it was a struggle. I called my sister who had a baby nurse at the time. She had just given birth. Mm. And I said, ask her if she knows anyone. And Mm -hmm. she did. And she came. I interviewed her. And she was wonderful. Oh, good. So I felt it was okay to leave Queens. But she she carried on so with the aid. She didn't sleep at night at all, crying and screaming. Mm. That I felt so terrible. Mm-hmm. That I was going there on the weekend so the aide could go home and get some sleep. Mm-hmm. And I slept in the bedroom and listened to her carry on. Wow. And I think I did that when I look back out of guilt. Mm-hmm. Because I guess I spent a lot, a lot of part of my life wishing she was gone. Mm. So when she did die, I felt really guilty yeah. about it. Well, and part of that feeling that you had was a lot of the messages she gave to you. She yes. was saying, you can't go to college, um, lots of things like that that were really demeaning. And even when she, you know, when your grandmother was very ill, she she put you in charge of all of her care, and which and was my a father. lot. <laughs> yeah, a lot for a young woman, 14-year-old. Yeah. She she went back to work when my sister was three, full time. Mm-hmm. And then she'd come home from work and she'd be out every night playing a canaster or a marjon. Oh, so it was left to me mm. to take care of everybody. And then she she said things about kind of how you, you didn't oh. go to college, right? And things like that, too. And I couldn't do anything right. Mm. Um, and when I misbehaved, she, there was something, it was interesting, there was something very sexual about her. Mm. And mm. she would call, even my sister, who's seven years younger than I, um, she would call us a prostitute, a whore, oh. at a young age. Oh, my gosh. And I remember, I don't know if I shared this with you. Yeah. But at age 11, I remember thinking to myself after having a knockout argument with her, there was no way I was going to ever get married Mm. or have a child of my own because I would not do what Mm -hmm. was done to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 It was a really, it was really, really difficult Growing up with her. Yes. And then, you know, as you mentioned, she had the mesothelioma and yes. the aid, and there you were every weekend. Yes. But then on her deathbed, she was equally well, one as step distressing. Behind, um, both my sister and I convinced her to see a psychiatrist when right. she was dying. That's right. Yeah. And he he told us, he couldn't make a decisive diagnosis because she was so ill. But he felt she had been a manic depressant. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to remember. Oh, um, a 
hypochondria. Mm. And she couldn't help herself. And, you know, she was one of five sisters. Mm. And if I questioned her sisters, or my sister did, they protected her. Mm. Yeah. And interesting enough, her youngest sister, who really knew me, because she lived with us until she got married Mm -hmm. also, and she was very protective of me. Mm. And she informed my mother when I was about 10 or 11, she felt I needed therapy, that I was very depressed. Mm. And we did go for evaluation. And it turned out she was the one who needed the therapy and not often how it is. (laughs) Well, that was the end of that one. Oh, gosh. And if it wasn't for my dad, who, Mm -hmm. when he was home, looked after us Mm -hmm. and did things with the three of us every weekend. Yeah. Um, So I remember those good times. With your father. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So then fast forward to when she's dying and she was quite distressing on her deathbed. Oh. You and your sister. Yes, because she blamed God for her illness. And I believe it happened, I'm not sure if it was at home that my sister and I were with her. I believe it was in the hospital. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we were there before my brother came in. And she wouldn't say it to him. But she said it to my sister and myself that if she were able to, Mm -hmm. she would take both of us with her. Mm. And as I put in my story, both Robin and I, we couldn't figure out if she meant it in a positive Mm -hmm. or a negative way. Right. But given the history, it was a little bit. Correct. It was tough to take. Yeah. Yeah. And we were there and wanted to hold her hand, and she wouldn't let us. And as soon as my brother walked in, Mm. she told him to come over and sit with her and hold her hand. Yeah, yeah. So it was hard. Yeah, really, really hard. And you had so many of those messages from her growing up. And yet, after, after she passed... Um, even though you had been told, you know, you're never going to amount to anything, right? She said that. I remember (laughs) you telling me that. Don't go to college. That's a waste of time. You, um, you overcame all those negative messages. And could you tell us a little bit about that process and your college career and master's and your work? I was, I was working full time at the time. and. During the year following her death, I thought about it. I really wanted to go to college. I thought it would be a really positive experience for me. So I started looking at the different schools in Manhattan, Columbia, um, Fordham, Hunter. had a knockout fight with my dad because (laughs) I decided it was Fordham. They had small classes. It was at Lincoln Center. 
it was what they call a non-traditional population, mm -hmm. uh, which means adults going at night. There was very few um, regular classes during the day at the time. Mm -hmm. And I took the entrance exam. I was told I had to take remedial English prior to entering. Mm -hmm. So I knew I had to pass the course so that they would allow me to enter. And I took remedial English. I had this wonderful professor, mm -hmm. a visiting professor. And my first paper was like a D plus or a D minus. Mm -hmm. And I worked very hard. And at the end of the term, it was a summer course. My last paper was an A. Oh, that's amazing. And I felt like I had a feather in my cap. Yeah, yeah. Right, because this was, I mean, your your mom had said, you're not going to do well. And here you you turned it around and you did well. I do have to put something in that I did yeah. not write about in my paper, yeah, in my story. Absolutely. Um, prior to entering Fordham, I was very shy, had a weight problem. Mm. Um, kept most people I met at bay, so I didn't have a lot of friends. And I started Fordham. I met a great group of people, both male and female, mm -hmm. and became very active in school politics. Mm -hmm. And Non-traditional students had like no, we had like nothing. If you came to school yeah. at night, um, administrative offices closed at six o'clock. The right. cafe closed at seven, and we got a half-hour break because they were three-hour classes. Mm -hmm. So we our oh, no there was no scholarship money. Well, we fought. We got the offices opened late. We got the cafe to stay open That's late. That's amazing. And we got a non-traditional scholarship. Wow, that's amazing. And I think part of it was feeling free. Mm -hmm. And nobody really knew me, so they couldn't judge me. Mm. And I worked very hard. Mm-hmm. And by going to school, I was working full-time at night, summer courses, and then I took a um, life experience tutorial one term. Okay. At the time, New York State offered for adults, taking this tutorial, writing papers about various topics and what you learned from it, and you got extra credit. Okay. And I figured, oh, all right, maybe I'll get some credit. It'll get me through it sooner. Well, it turned out I must have written about six papers. Mm. And I had help from my friends in editing. I ended up with 23 credits. Nice. Which is very unusual. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. It was. And I ended up graduating undergrad in six years. Okay. Great. Where given 
two extracurricular activity or awards for um, the things that I accomplished Mm -hmm. during my tenure. And I was determined, and it was after my mother died, I wanted to be able to help people. Mm -hmm. And I had a wonderful social worker in the hospital when she was dying Mm. who really helped me get through that period. And it was through that experience that I really decided to go into get a degree in social work. Mm. Um, So I applied NYU, Columbia, Hunter, Fordham, got into all of the social work schools. That's amazing. Yeah. For me, it was. <laughs> and, and I figured I wanted a different experience from Fordham. And so I decided on NYU. Uh-huh. And again, working full time, I slept downtown. Yeah. A couple of nights a week. Yeah. And um, the hospital I worked in were kind enough to let me do my first placement there. Okay. So that worked out really well. Yeah. And in the end, I didn't get my degree. Um, I had a year and a half. I had like six months. And I would have to leave the hospital to do the second placement. Mm-hmm. And financially, I decided I couldn't do it. And I would, at the end, had to take a huge cut in salary going oh. into social work. Wow. Oh, gosh. But they gave me more responsibility at the hospital. Yeah. And um, when I look back at the time, I didn't think how fulfilling that job was Mm -hmm. for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, The things that I was able to accomplish Mm -hmm. of um, getting a certificate and being able to apply for Medicaid. Um, our hospital was more like a private hospital and would not apply for Medicaid mm. for patients who were going to nursing homes, home services. And I developed the whole program. That's amazing. And you helped so many people through your career. I did. And then I yeah. ended up also doing um, guardianships. Wow. Wow. I was able to. To help people with that as well. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So here you were fed these messages of you're not going to amount to anything. And yet you amounted to so much and helped so many people. What what was the change in you? What do you think kind of was the impetus to say, you know, what? I'm not going to believe that because I think so many people who are listening probably have had moments where they've been told certain things that are really lies about them and it can hold people back for so long. What helped you kind of overcome those messages? I think not at the time, but now I started to feel better about myself, Mm. that I was capable Mm -hmm. of being able to do all these things. Yeah. That I'm not sure how to, I don't, of how to describe what my mother made me feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's hard to put into words. Yes. Right. Right. 
Yeah. And you started to tell yourself, yeah, I can do this. I am capable. I'm not going to listen to that. Right. I mean, doing the politics and getting involved, which was like advocating. And not only that, the group of friends, we were all adults. And we used to have parties at my house every Saturday night. Oh, my gosh. So fun. (laughs) Oh, my God. At least. 10, 15, 20 people. Oh, I love it. Men and women. (laughs) I mean, it was really great. Yeah, a really great time in your life. So, I mean, my whole life changed with it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, then you had this brilliant career and kind of fast forward. um, Then you were diagnosed with cancer and and that was quite a long time ago. And you've been on that journey since. Can you share a little bit about that? Um, Excuse me. Can you share a little bit about that journey that you've had? Um, The journey began in 1999. Mm -hmm. I had been followed for calcification on my breast for Mm -hmm. a number of years. And I went for my annual checkup and the GYN doctor said, she said about having the mammography. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, she wanted me to have a sonogram after the mammography. She said that there was something that stood out and she wanted to look, have it looked at further. And then she called me and she said, it is suspicious and I should see um, a breast surgeon, which I did. Mm-hmm. And I had a biopsy turned out to be malignant and Mm. as I write in the story my first experience with cancer and I was sitting in the surgeon's office with a friend and when she told me I would have to have a lumpectomy followed by six weeks of radiation Mm. I started to cry yeah um I had never had a major surgery. I've never been sick. And I said, my worst nightmare has come true. Yeah. And I went, I had the lumpectomy, followed by six weeks of radiation, went to work every day, didn't miss a day of work, went for the treatment after work. Mm Mm-hmm. And each time I've been faced with a different cancer, I went for short-term therapy afterwards Mm -hmm. because the anxiety was enormous. Yeah. Thinking I was going to die. Mm -hmm. Um, When I went back for the pathology report with the breast, she indicated to me it it was in. CCIS and pseudo, it had not spread. There was no sign in any of my lymph nodes. Mm -hmm. And with the radiation and then a course of tamoxifen, I would be fine. Mm -hmm. And I knew it was caused, it was hormonal. It didn't have any, may have been exacerbated by the immune system. But I had been on a lot of hormones for my period during my life. So I figured she agreed. And 
Mm. That was 99. And then in taking tamoxifen, I had to see my gynecologist every six months and have a sonogram because I had a fibroid, which never grew, never bothered me. Mm -hmm. And I was finishing up my tamoxifen regimen, and the doctor said, well, when you come in for your next visit, you don't need a sonogram. Nothing's changed in five years. Mm -hmm. But I didn't, I started not to feel well, and I couldn't pinpoint it. So I called her, and she said, okay, go have the sonogram. And that was a Friday, and I saw her Tuesday late. And she examines me, and she says, oh, I can't find anything. I said, did you get the results from the radiologist? Mm -hmm. And she looked, and she said, no. She said, get dressed, and I'm going to call her. And then she called me into her office and gave me the good news that both my uterus and fibroid had tripled in size in the Mm. six months. Yeah. And she said, would you mind if I talk to a colleague? She says, Mm -hmm. you most probably do need a total hysterectomy. Right. So this was not good news. You're being (laughs) facetious here. Yeah. Yeah. This was really difficult news to hear. Yes. And I said, no, of course not. Having no idea who the colleague was. Mm-hmm. Or what I possibly what could possibly be wrong, mm-hmm. and at seven o'clock that night she called me at home, and she said I spoke to my colleague, mm-hmm. and he would like to see you. Mm-hmm. Still not knowing who he was, she gave me the name, and she said call in the morning to make an appointment. And when I went, my sister came with me. And I realized he was a GYN oncology surgeon. Mm-hmm. And he explained to me one of the very rare side effects of tamoxifen is a rare sarcoma. Mm. And it was possible that's what caused the enlarged uh, uterus and fibroid. And I had 10 days. He made the appointment for the hysterectomy for 10 days, and I had to have a lot of testing. Mm. And it turned out they found scarring on my bone marrow. Mm -hmm. So before the surgery, I had to see a hematologist who indicated I need a bone marrow biopsy. And I discussed it with the surgeon because I was told it was a big surgery. I was being cut from my belly button down, yeah, or actually from my waist. And I said, is it possible to have the biopsy in the hospital? Because mm-hmm. I was going to be there for five to seven days. He spoke to the hematologist, and they agreed it was fine. And I had it a couple of days after surgery. Having the surgery, first of all, it was delayed by two hours, and I'm sitting there hysterical. Hysterical with the <laughs> yeah. anesthesiologist. Yeah, waiting. And, you know, he came in and tried to comfort me, my surgeon, <laughs> and finally had the surgery and went, went fine. 
my surgeon was the one who woke me in recovery and took my hand and said, I am like 99% sure you are fine, Mm. that I didn't see any sign of sarcoma. And which was a relief. Yeah, of course. Had the biopsy. I had to go see her two weeks after when I got home. I went to see her. First thing she said to me is, oh, you have myelofibrosis. And you need to go to Mount Sinai transplant for a bone marrow transplant. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, my God, you think God's punishing (laughs) (laughs) He couldn't make anything simple for me. Mm. I mean, it was a very hard time. Mm. I mean, a hysterectomy and your hormones are all over the place. Yeah, yeah. And we left the hematologist's office. My sister was working already here at um, Yale School of Medicine. And she said, we are not going to Mount Sinai just yet. I am going to speak with my hematologist. Right. She Who was Dr. Duffy, right? Yes. A very Thank God for Dr. Duffy. Well-known and respected um, oncologist who Up until served at the Yale end of his for, life. Yeah, yes. And He's an incredible person. She caught him in a pouring rain outside the hospital. Oh. And explained my situation. Um, He said he really wanted to see me, but not until I was fully recuperated, six weeks, to have have me send him my complete medical chart with the actual pathology. Okay. Which I did. I came up here, had a three-hour exam. With mm-hmm. a lot of labs and allergy tests. Mm-hmm. And at the end, he said, I don't believe you need a bone marrow transplant. I don't think it's myelo- actual myelo, those were his words, actual myelofibrosis. I think it's a rear hematological disorder, mm. but I won't know until all the test results come back. Right. And to come back in 10 days, I go back in 10 days, I'm sitting in the waiting room and he comes out (laughs) and he takes my hand and he says, you don't need the transplant now. I will explain, you do have a rare hematological disorder. Mm -hmm. But what a relief that was, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. 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 And... He explained I had systemic mastocytosis, known as mast cell. The tests proved that, the labs. Um, I had an enlarged spleen. Mm -hmm. Um, Told me from now on I would probably be allergic to anesthesia Mm -hmm. and have to uh, make sure that I have a special cocktail prior to administering the anesthesia. Mm -hmm. And a lot of allergy reactions. Okay. And I was followed like every three months by seeing him. Mm -hmm. 
and I ended up being put on a lot of allergy medication. Um, I had a lot of abdominal distress. Um, mm. And for two years, I was okay. Mm-hmm. That was 2004. 2006, I went for my annual wellness checkup. And at the end, my primary care said, it's time for bone density. Mm-hmm. And it's been a while. Didn't say anything about the nodule. I had a nodule in my neck. Right. But right. I had it for many years. Never yeah. changed, never grew. And all of a sudden, he didn't say it changed. He just said, I think um, you need to have um, a checkup. A uh, sonogram mm-hmm. done first. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I went. That was a Friday. Monday morning, his office calls. He wanted to see me that afternoon. Mm. Again, I'm hysterical in my office. My poor friends went through a lot with me. Mm. And I went. First thing he says to me, oh, one step back, when I went for the bone density and the nodule sonogram, I told the technician, right. I have mast cell. You are going to see uh, scarring on my bone marrow. And it's the mast cell. It is not metastatic bone cancer. Mm-hmm. First thing he says to me, the doctor, you have metastatic bone cancer. Because <laughs> he wasn't aware, really, of the bone scarring well, I hadn't instead, remembered it. First of all, having worked in healthcare, why would you tell the patient that from just one x ray, a bone right. density, without any other backup yeah. as far as labs or further testing? Just came out and said, You have metastatic bone cancer. And I'm looking at him and crying. I of said, Of course. I said, you need to call Dr. Duffy. No, I don't have to call Dr. Duffy. Mm. I said, I'll take the phone. <laughs> Good for you. He, at first, he didn't want to give it to me. And I said, I would like to call. I, I think I had, I think they, we must have had cell phones. I called and Dr. Duffy got on the phone mm-hmm. right away. Mm-hmm. And I explained what happened, mm-hmm. he, he said to me, I don't think you have bone cancer. I believe it's your mast cell. Let me talk to the doctor. Mm-hmm. Spoke to him. Gave me back the phone. Dr. Duffy said, you know what? Just to convince him, go for another bone scan. Mm. And I said, okay. Gosh. And... Meantime, the nodule, he says to me, I don't think it's anything, but you need to have it biopsied. Oh, gosh. So when I went back to the hospital the next day, I made an appointment for the bone scan, which I couldn't. First appointment was that Friday. And Friday, I go for the bone scan. And the radiologist called me in. He was the head of radiology. And because I had the rear mass cell, Mm -hmm. he said to me, why are you here? Yeah. 
and I tell him what happened. He said, your bone scan is the same as it was two years ago. (laughs) Right. He said, he called Dr. Duffy and told him. And Dr. Duffy assured assured me, I'm fine. Meantime, I couldn't find a surgeon to do the biopsy on my neck. Well, and I just want to stop you there. That's such a roller coaster of emotions to go through. And I know there are so many people who have experienced that. They either get a false positive or somehow misinformation in their in the midst of their their healthcare. And it can be so jarring um, to 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 think you're you're well. I mean, no wonder you said you were hysterical. Um, I think a lot of people can sometimes sort of say, gosh, I, you know, I'm, I'm being too much or too emotional, but no wonder, you know, you were hysterical. Yes. This is really difficult news to hear and confusing, you know, given what you knew about your cancer. And um, and you're right. Many people yeah. don't. Yeah, right, right. So I go for the, I finally go for the um, biopsy. Turns out to be malignant. Oh, right. And I thought about it. And I said, oh, I think I'm going to want to have the surgery up at Yale. So I called Dr. Duffy. Oh, and told him. And my sister was friends, good friends um, with these two doc, well, the wives. One was head of endocrinology at the time. Okay. So he recommended a head and neck surgeon. Oh, good. And her other friend was head of anesthesiology and knew my situation, so I felt more comfortable. Oh, good. So had the surgery. Only one nodule was detected on the sonogram. Okay. I had the surgery. And when I went back a week later for the pathology report, yeah, turned out there were two malignant nodules, and the surgeon couldn't believe the second one didn't show on the sonogram. Hmm. And he said, um, I was unable to get all of the malignant cells that were in your thyroid bed. They were too close to your vocal cords. Right. And I was fearful of damaging the vocal cords. Mm -hmm. So then I was, um, I asked him for a endocrinologist I needed. And I was referred to Dr. Holt, Elizabeth Holt. Mm -hmm. And she recommended a radioactive iodine treatment to try and treat the cells that were left. Mm-hmm. And that was done up here at Yale. Yeah. And I had follow-up next scan a few months after that. It was okay. A year later, I went for a next scan follow-up, and they discovered another nodule, and Mm -hmm. he biopsied it. It was malignant. Mm. And went for pre-op. It was all scheduled. Went for pre-op, and on pre-op, 
they found scarring on my lungs, both lobes. And mm. it was determined after Dr. Holt spoke with the surgeon that I see a thoracic surgeon. They weren't sure if it was lung cancer related to the breast cancer I had mm-hmm. or thyroid cancer or something else. Mm-hmm. So I had to go in for lung surgery. And thank God it turned out that the thyroid cancer metastasized to my lung. Okay. So it wasn't a new cancer. Mm-hmm. Right. So I had, I was followed, I had, um, I was followed by Dr. Holt, mm-hmm. who recommended another round of radioactive iodine. And she said she would like to refer me to Sloan Kettering because they did a process to determine what number you should be given of the iodine. Mm -hmm. And they do it here at Yale now, but not then. Mm -hmm. Um, So I went to Sloan Kettering. It was called dosimetry, and they determined the dosage to give you. Okay. So I continued to be followed both up here at Yale and at Sloan Kettering mm-hmm. with nuclear medicine and mm-hmm. my lungs um, until the nuclear medicine doctor left. And then mm-hmm. I just switched back here entirely. But that was before I had a third round of iodine right. at Sloan Kettering. And each with each cancer, I have to say, I did go for short-term rehab. Uh, Therapy. Mm. You mean counseling or like physical therapy? No. Counseling. Yeah. Psychological therapy. Yeah. To get me through each experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and I I know before we we started um, the interview, we were talking about you you have such an incredible um, memory for details. I I feel like I can't remember what happened last week, let alone oh, I can't back in, in 1999, but but I'm actually really glad that um I'm so glad that you've been able to capture all of these details for our listeners because I think that so often, you know, we we think um okay, you get the diagnosis and then you have treatment and then, but there's so many pieces to this. There's so many phone calls. There's so much back and forth. There's so much going in for this and going in for that. It's well, um, it's a lot. It's a lot. Yes, but and I a have a roller coaster of emotions in the midst of it. So, yeah. I kept journals. That's good. I have three or four journals. Okay. Yeah. With and each that was diagnosis. Helpful? Yes. Is that helpful? How so to keep those journals? Like what, what was helpful about because those? Because I would write each visit down. Uh-huh. I would put questions I needed to ask the doctor mm-hmm. what the response was. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it was very helpful in helping me understand yeah. due to the diagnosis. Right, and what was going on? When you're in the visit, sometimes it's hard to take it all in because it's such an emotional thing that they're telling you, yeah. actually. But it's full of these logistics you actually need to remember. 
So that's that's really wise taking that journal. I, I oh, think it's great. Yeah, I think it's also great that you were seeking therapy too after each of these diagnoses. Yes, but process. I wasn't ready to deal with myself, mm, yeah. with my being. But it was getting me through the cancer. Yeah, and accepting it. Yeah, and that it wasn't the end of the world. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and so do you want to kind of? Um, I'm going to skip over to to uh, when you met Ed, who is another counselor here, a social worker. I almost feel it was like by accident. Um, I, I think it was after the melanoma. No, it was later on. Um, right, because there are so many more details between where you just left off and meeting right. Ed. You had a lot more um you know, treatment and diagnoses and a lot more. Met Dr. Podolsev and um, um, moved up here to Connecticut. There's, gosh, there's a lot to your story. <laughs> I got involved in an intern program through psychiatry. Okay. Um, they were psychology interns mm -hmm. and they were here for a year. Mm -hmm. and. I think my psychological journey began with the first one. Okay. I saw it too. Um, and they were both wonderful. Mm, okay. I think so I bad. was ready. I was ready for that part of the journey. Yeah. And that was a program through the palliative care department. Is that right? Or cancer? It was through Cancer definitely Hospital? through Smilo. It wasn't through palliative care. Okay. Okay. Good. So people can access psychologists at, at um, the hospital and ask for that. And there are interns that people can can ask I, for as well. I am amazed. Let's put it that I am amazed at what's available mm. at Smilo for patients. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was sent one. Time I mean, it's years ago. There's a survivorship clinic. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, trying to think some of the integrated, integrated medicine, medicine. Uh -huh. which I took advantage of. Oh, God. Um, and the intern program was like not ending, but the psychiatrist who oversaw it was going on sabbatical. Okay. And I believe it was the social worker. I'm trying. I think it was the social worker um, in Head and Shoulders, Orendo, mm -hmm. that got me connected to Ed and palliative care. Oh, God. And which was a great find for me. Yeah, he's amazing. And he's now in private practice yes. down in Trumbull, still mm -hmm. seeing people who have chronic illness or um, are, you know, have a terminal illness as well, but not, yes. not anymore at, at Yale New Haven. Right. Right. But right. he retired. Yes. <laughs> and took on <laughs> private practice. So that's not really retiring it. <laughs> We're all glad he's still doing, <gasps> doing some care out in the world because he's so good at it. Yes, he is. <laughs> I mean, oh my God, I thought it was 
be the end of the world when he told me he was leaving. And he said, don't worry. He says, I'm taking you with me. <laughs> we said, that's not really retiring. Everybody right. sees lots of people now, and we're all very grateful. <laughs> then I, when was, oh, long story short, my white blood count mm, started. Yeah. I was watched by the hematologist. Dr. Duffy retired. His mm-hmm. fellow, one of his fellows who I really respected, mm-hmm. who had gone to Harvard for a fellowship okay. when she finished here, he brought her back when he retired. And I ended, oh. There was someone else in between, but eventually I got back to Dr. Parker. Okay, good. And... She was observant about my white blood count over a year, mm-hmm. um, which slowly increased every time I had labs done. And finally, I guess it was at a, a point, she said to me, I would like you to have a, another bone marrow biopsy. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, she explained why. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, you know, of course. So I had it, and I also had special blood labs done mm-hmm. for mutation. And then I went to see her, and she explained um, the diagnosis was confirmed, myelofibrosis. You have uh, the mutation for it. Mm. There is a doctor here who specializes in the— she explained what it was, part of neoplasma, and that's what his specialty. And she would like to transfer me to him mm. because her main thing was multiple myeloma. Okay. And they had explained to, correct me if I'm wrong, but that the mast cell had sort of um, leads into myelofibrosis. Yes. So Dr. Duffy was right. You didn't have the myelofibrosis at that time, but then it, it can lead to. Right, it's rare, but Dr. Podosov confirmed that. Mm. He explained what myelofibrosis is. Mm. And um, must, let's see, I was okay for a year. Mm -hmm. I was watched every three months. And then my platelets started decreasing. Okay. And after about a year, the norm starts at 150. Mine kept going down. I remember it was in the 40s. Mm-hmm. Told me about a medication because uh, there were a lot of side effects to myelofibrosis. Mm. Enlarged spleen, abdominal distress. Mm. Um, a lot of the same things as mast cell allergies. Um, a low immune system. Mm-hmm. He said there is a medication. Oh, first he said to me, there is no cure, mm-hmm. no treatment for the disease itself. Oh. Except for a bone marrow transplant, I laughed. And he said, don't even ask me about it. <laughs> I said, you are not a candidate. Oh, and wow. you would never survive one. Oh, my gosh. How was that hearing that news? Because that seems like, yeah, of all the things. I mean, you 
you had breast cancer, you had a hysterectomy, you had thyroid cancer that spread to your lung. Melanoma. You had mast cell, you had melanoma, and now here with the myelofibrosis, that it's not curable and that you are not eligible for a transplant. That's a lot to hear, especially after you've been through so, so much. Then I second guess, well, what if Dr. Duffy said to have the transplant back in 2004? Mm -hmm. And what did they say about that? Don't think about it. Don't think about it. (laughs) It was difficult for me, but I didn't have a choice because I knew I wouldn't survive. Right, right. At my age. And, you know, you mentioned before, too, um, God, God punishing God. And I know that's something that your mom in the past had sort of said, oh, if you get sick, it's your fault. You did something wrong and God's punishing you and he's punishing you with illness. Um, Can you share a little bit more about that? I think that was one of the reasons why I went for therapy after each. Yeah, sure. Um, Not to think that I was a bad person. Mm. Um. It was not easy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in part, with everything going on, I didn't have too much time to think. I mean, I would become depressed. Mm. You know, like, why is this happening to me? Mm-hmm. I know people get one cancer. Sometimes they get a cancer that could be relate a second cancer. But this is like five. Right. And a year after being with Dr. Pedosis, I'm at one of my visits. Mm-hmm. And he turns to me and he says, do you know why you've had multiple cancers? I'm looking <laughs> at him. No. No. <laughs> right. And he said, you had a chromosomal mishap in vitro. And I'm looking mm-hmm. at him like, I'm 75 years old. How did you find this out? Yeah. And I said, I said it to him. I said, how did you find out? Mm-hmm. And he said, from your bone marrow biopsy. Mm. He's a researcher on That's it. That's amazing. So uh, it wasn't your fault. It wasn't well, as your mother tro- would say. It wasn't your fault. There it was, was no easy to blame her, though. Way. <laughs> right, right, right. He did make the point to say, well, it's also not your mother's fault. <laughs> oh, he made the point to saying that because right. he knew me. But this was big for you, though, to start to think about, you know, because over the years, you know, I imagine there were times where that that voice of your mom would come in and you'd think, oh, gosh, maybe I did cause this. I've got so many of these. What am I doing wrong to cause these things? And here, Dr. Podolsev sort of, you know, in that one comment said to you, it it really hit you, um, it impacted you in a deep way. There's no way this could have been my fault. Well, then I I did not do anything as a fetus, you know? Exactly. (laughs) Right. And I said, are my sister and brother at risk? Right. No. Mm. It's an individual. Because both my sister and brother have had no cancer. So, right. Oh, gosh. So then I go on to say, mm. I don't understand. <laughs> I said, 
I was perfectly fine the first half of my life, except for childhood illnesses. And then after midlife, everything started. Right, because this was some. If this was something that happened in in utero, right? Why is it suddenly cropping up midway exactly. through your life? Yeah. Um, all along, they told me it was environmental. All my okay. cancers, huh? <laughs> and I, I would say to them, "Well, do you think working, living in Manhattan on nine eleven could exacerbate it?" Mm-hmm. And he said, "Most likely." Because yeah. it was 18 months after that that okay. it all started. And it was kind of the stress of being in the city. Yes. I during mean, during that time. You could smell it for months. I know it. You yeah. Know. So I couldn't blame God on that. Right. Then I turned to him. That wasn't enough information. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> What is my prognosis? Mm hmm takes out a calculator and starts putting numbers in. Mm. I'm looking at it. Oh, my gosh. Oh, God. And then he turns to me and he says, about a year to a year and a half. And this is two years ago. I love it. (laughs) And here you are, still still kicking, still going strong. After I did the... Uh, presentation on on Zoom. Uh-huh. Zoom pre- right. You, well, for our listeners, Ellen was um, a panelist for Schwartz Rounds, which is a program we do here at the hospital to process um, different cases. And so we had a couple of authors um, who are patients come and, and speak, and it was really wonderful. And Ellen was one of those. So it was a really good, good opportunity to hear. Well, yeah. On my next visit, we finished the exam and all, and he says to me, like, I'm in awe about you. And I'm oh, looking at I him. I love that. He says, you come in here, you dress, you yes. look okay. Yeah. And you're carrying on your life. hmm And I said, well, I try my best. I said, I haven't done anything because, I, because of COVID. And I think... It, I just astounded him. I don't uh, know why. Yeah. Well, I, I I have a, a, a theory about it because <laughs> you, you astound me as well. You do, as he said, you continue to carry yourself and to, you continue to to go through your life, even though you have all of this going on and have faced so much, not only with your cancer, but with your mother and all of those messages and you still have this inside of you, this ability to overcome. And a lot of people can really get um, stuck uh, and and not be able to overcome. And and you have been able to do that. And and it's been it's it's incredible to see. Well, I think it's the changes psychologically, mm, the therapy that you have. I came to and- see you. Yeah. And I was searching mm-hmm. for something. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Um, I didn't have faith mm-hmm. or spirituality. Mm-hmm. And I said to Ed after the after he told me about um, the my reading. prognosis, 
Oh, right. Or even before. Yeah. I had a fear of dying of illness. And it's very important to me that I be at peace. Mm -hmm. And I said, I saw that with my father. Right. I saw the strength and courage that he had. Absolutely. Yeah. And I was taken back as all growing up. I never thought that he had this inner strength and courage. Mm -hmm. And I said, I want that. Mm -hmm. And I want to be happy. Mm -hmm. And so you've been on this journey of exploration, you know, with Ed, but also, you know, you've been exploring your, your faith. So could you share a little bit more about that journey and how that's been? I've come to believe there is someone above mm-hmm. who is looking over me. Mm. Not that punishing. I, what? Not punishing. Not punishing. Yeah. And actually giving me, giving me time. Mm-hmm. I mean, the first couple of months after I moved up here were really difficult. Right. It was in the middle of COVID. In the middle of COVID. I did it in six weeks. Oh, my gosh. And I've never been happier. Mm -hmm. The move, you know, first I said to my sister, oh, I should have done it a long time ago after (laughs) I retired. And she said, don't think that way. Yeah. Yeah. Because... Coming up here and and moving up here, you finally found a community, right? Because you had that community in in college, but then it sort of dissipated over your career and you got involved in your career and everything. And so a little bit, there was a a little bit of loneliness in New York City, which can happen to many New Yorkers, um, speaking as a New Yorker and uh, who's experienced that. Um, And coming up here, you found that that close-knit community. I have. Yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. You have friends that have surrounded you here. Yeah, and that's made a huge difference. And even in working with it, my relationship with my sister has improved. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. How so? How, How has that been helpful? I... I think there's a seven-year age difference. Mm-hmm. And she had a lot of hurdles in her life as different, you know, from mine. And I think we depended on on each other. And they weren't realistic expectations mm-hmm. of each other. Mm-hmm. And I think we've gotten to a place mm. uh, that we have never been. Part of it, part oh. of it is that my mother set up sibling rivalry. Sure. Mm-hmm. And you all have been able to overcome that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, just to put a fine point on it, too, your faith has grown so much. Um, and you've said that. Um, if I could just um, ask you too about this this time where you you had a fall, right? And 
And I think it so exemplifies the growth in your in your faith where you you fell and and previously you would have blamed yourself and thought, oh God, I did something wrong. And then God sort of knocked me down off my feet. <laughs> and and this is, you know, we laugh about it now, but but gosh, it's really, I mean, you know, when you talk about depression and anxiety and all of those things, um, th- those kind of messages in our mind are those things that can really bring us down, you know? Yes. Um, so, so, we, so then we're suffering from not only the physical injuries of the fall, but then we're suffering from, oh, I did something wrong and God's punishing me. And now, now what did you think about it when that happened? I didn't, <laughs> it was an accident. I don't know why I fell. Yeah. It wasn't God. Yeah. That pushed me down. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it seems so simple, but that's a huge difference to think it's not my fault. It was just an accident and God's not smiting me from on high. I am good and worthy of God's love and support. And and I know as you you've talked about, um, you know, if you're comfortable talking about thinking about the end of your life, um, at a certain point it was very scary to think, oh, is God going to be sort of punishing me even then or absent? And now you have a different view of oh, that time and what that I might be like. I do. Yeah. So what's your view now of that? Um. It's almost like I'd be going to a better place. Mm. Mm. That I will be, I'll be okay. I will be comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been told multiple times they will not let me suffer. Mm-hmm. That's right. Which was important to me. I guess after seeing my mother and my father. Right. Um, that palliative care would not let you suffer. I'm very involved with yep. palliative. Yeah. Right. And, you know, you were saying, too, that you realized that your, your mother's words were actually not really a reflection of your Jewish faith. No. And they were not accurate picture of Judaism. And you've, you're, you're, your faith has grown. You, you've it been has. able to reach out to to a rabbi, a local rabbi, and yes. and meet and talk with him and find solace. And I did sort of invest more in in your faith. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I even was able to plan my funeral. Wow! Wow! Thanks, totally. She went with me. Your friend went with you. Yeah. That's incredible. So it's the support of, you know, folks like Ed and the social worker and your friends and spiritual support and Dr. Podolsev and among other doctors saying the most beautiful things to you. Yeah. Yeah. That you've really been surrounded. And, you know, you have your friend here, Arlene, as well. And I'm looking over at her and we're nodding our heads that, you know, (laughs) it's, you know, you bring that. To yourself, too, that, that you know, we wouldn't all be, um, you know, I think you wouldn't have this level of support around you if, if you didn't have such light within you, you know, and, and such a, a beautiful it, spirit. It's still difficult for 
for me to think that way. Right. Um, I think it takes a long time mm-hmm. for acceptance of who I am. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. But yeah. it's been a journey. Yeah. Yeah. And probably a daily, a daily journey. Yes. Yeah. And I am sure there is someone who's listening who can relate to your story. I hope so. Yeah. I hope it gives them courage. Yeah. So I wonder if you would have any kind of parting words or advice for folks as you, as we end here today, Mm -hmm. you know, for someone who maybe have had messages like, like you had as a child or someone who's going through a lot of cancers and things like that, any advice you'd have for them? Just think positive. Mm-hmm. Going with the flow, mm. asking questions, mm. advocating, advocating for yourself, which is very important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks so much, Ellen. Thank you. My goodness, we could talk for a lot longer, I'm sure. <laughs> And we do, and I'm so lucky to be able to. Um, but I'm really glad that we were able to give this hour to to listeners to be able to to hear from you and hear your wisdom. Um, so thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Jane. This episode of In the Midst of It All was made possible by the generous support of the Yale Cancer Center, Yale New Haven Hospital, the Yale Palliative Care Program, and the Yale New Haven Department of Spiritual Care. Huge gratitude for Rodney Staggers, a man with cerebral palsy who helped birth this idea and has been a huge creative motivator. Thank you to Ellen Hoverkamp, an artist with metastatic lung cancer, who created the artwork for our podcast. You can find her artwork at myneighborsgarden.com. A big shout out to Emily Montemerlo, who, among other things, helps edit the stories you have heard and who just is a lovely support in every way. And Ryan McAvoy, who helps record and edit the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit that subscribe button and tell your friends. It would mean so much to us and to all our podcast guests if you would leave it a review in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We would love to hear how this podcast has helped you. Okay, friends, we will post our next story and interview soon. But in the meantime, check out more stories on the Yale New Haven Hospital Yale Cancer Center website. This is In the Midst of It All with me, Chaplain Jane.